listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale January 19, 2022. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. And I'm Jasmine Estrada. Whoa, this is weird. <laughs> yeah, she's here. Oh, everybody, this is a very special, maybe somber episode of Marvel's Pull List because it is Tamarius Tucker Marcus's final episode for a little while, mm-hmm. at least, uh, for a final time as I are our regular co-host tucker how you feeling you know yeah i feel the same i'm i'm so happy that we get to i get to unload some of the um some of the spotlight some of the pressure here on old jazz it was super (laughs) weird i was like i mean even like before i was talking about how i normally just kind of like mute myself and turn my camera off and let you guys do your thing yeah and i like instinctively went to go do it and i'm like oh wait no i have to (laughs) Actually, stay on. For the listener, we're, we've decided to do a little something special here, as this is, like Ryan said, my last episode as a regular co-host. If you've been listening at all, if you've listened to a single second of, of the podcast over the last, how long, Jazz? Two years? Two years? Two a little over years? two years yeah. now. Yeah. Well, um, we have 184 episodes. Well, I was going to say with Jasmine in particular. Oh, with Jasmine. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you've listened to over the last two plus years, then basically everything you've heard is in huge part thanks to Jasmine as a producer. So this is um, a very familiar voice and face to us. Uh, and now hopefully a more and more familiar voice to to you out there in, in listener land. Yeah. Um, so as Tucker leaves us to go live his best life, travel the world, uh, invent new forms of communication, whatever the things he may be doing, uh, I will still be here um, as one of the main chairs. But Jasmine will be joining me here and there uh, to help do our, do the co-hosting duties, talk about the books, do maybe do some reading clubs and all that other stuff. But we'll be bringing back some other people, some folks who have joined us before. Um, maybe some of our guests will come back and, and co-host with me once in a while. It's going to be uh, a fun time over the next couple of months as we figure out exactly what we can do to fill the soaking wet shoes of Tucker <laughs> Marcus. Uh, yeah. And, and hey, for further context here, um, we're here on our video chat recording the episode like we do every single week. And Jasmine is up there with the biggest comic book obsessives that I know. The tableau that we are blessed with on a weekly basis is Jasmine in front of the most precariously built and put together (laughs) enormous book stack of Marvel Comics trades, figures. There's a cap shield. There's an Iron Man helmet. There's like a million other things. (laughs) Jasmine is truly not just a producer, also a, a, you know, a a consumer of everything Marvel. So um, the show is in good hands, has been in good hands, continues to be in good hands. Um, And for everybody who's just joining us, like, what are you all talking about? Well, this is the official Marvel podcast of Marvel Comics, and we are going to talk about all the new comics out this week. We're going to tell you what's hitting Marvel Unlimited, our amazing subscription service, including some brand new Infinity Comics, the scrolling comics everybody is going gaga for, as well as the new collections out this week. And we have a reading club. Tucker, who's our guest this episode? 
This week, we are very, very lucky, talk about being lucky, uh, to talk to Marvel Comics editor Danny Kazem, who is, as I like to call him, the Prince Charming of the House of Ideas, one of the best guys around, um, and he has worked on so many of your favorite books. He was working with the Daredevil team for a long time, the Venom team for a long time. Now he works on Star Wars books, uh, Spidey books, and so much more. And with Danny, we will be talking about Spider-Man revelations uh and it's a good one we're gonna get into that and so much more later in the show but uh as we always do we have three picks of the week these are our personal favorite books basically the point of the show is not to tell you what's good and what's bad it's to tell you why we're excited about these books get you excited for these books and just enjoy the love for comics we're gonna do that with actually a trio of number ones this week i'm gonna kick us off with she hulk number one how could we not pick She-Hulk number one as one of our picks? First off, it is written by our pal and guest on the show, Rainbow Rowell. Art by Roger Antonio. Colors by Rico Renzi. Letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Part of this feels like a warm hug. You know, we've had She-Hulk all over the place in the Avengers. She's been massively powered. She's been, you know, fighting different things. She's had various levels of strength, size, ability. She's gone through a whole bunch of stuff since, gosh, what was that? Civil War II, six years ago, give mm-hmm. or take? Mm-hmm. Something like that. And this feels like bringing She-Hulk back to a very sensational period, um, a very sensational feel. If you are a fan of the John Byrne era of She-Hulk comics, this is right up your alley in like more ways than one. There's a whole section in here that is kind of almost a shot-for-shot bit from... Uh, great. From yeah, it's really great from from some John Byrne stuff, but in a new updated way, it's really fun. It is pithy. It is it moves very quickly. Uh, it's got the humor. It doesn't, as far as I've noticed, break any fourth wall stuff in here. It's just giving us great classic Jen Walters trying to mitigate what she wants to do, who she wants to be, how she wants to live, as she balances both sides of her personality. There's a great moment in here though where Titania shows up and she's like, "All right, let's fight." And Jennifer Walters is like, all right, just give me a second. And she like shimmies out of her, her business suit. And she's like, I don't want to like tear this up. And it's a very human thing and a very simple little interaction, but I absolutely loved it. It was like, and that's like five, maybe not even five pages in. Yeah. It's about five pages. in, And I was like, I love this book. I already love this book. It got me right there. It brings us a lot of classic She-Hulk vibes but also moves her into a current place, gives her very updated um, status quo in terms of where she's been, where she's going, what she needs to do. I, I can't speak highly enough of this. We know Rainbow is one of our favorites. Her run on Runaways, I think collectively all three of us have it as one of our favorites yep. of the last couple of years. And I can see this being straight up there with that. If you're like, hey, I want to dive into She-Hulk, first time reader, this is a great jumping on point. Yeah, um, and next up is my pick of the week, which is Silk Number One. Uh, it's written by Emily Kim, art by Takeshi Miyazawa, and colors by Ian Herring. Um, letters by VCs Ariana Mayer. And look, you were talking about human moments that are just very simple and grounded character. There's a panel in this book where Silk is wearing a sheet mask. Mm. Um, or I should say Cindy Moon, because she's literally in bed just wearing a sheet mask. And the minute I saw that, I was like, yes, that is 
exactly what I would do. Like that is a moment that just completely felt human. It felt normal, it felt natural. And like, I love seeing those little tidbits. Um, this book also is a great jumping on point. Um, it sets you up with a lot of different things. Um, a lot of stuff that's happened throughout Sydney Moon's history. And one of my favorite like uh, devices, like writing devices is the, the therapist in this book. Um, a lot of the times, a lot of people tend to think that that's like a weak point that it's just like, oh, here's all this expository being like shed. But this one actually uses it in a very, like it's, it's, it's very much a part of the character. Like this character has dealt with like severe trauma um, and needs to work through it. And that's what they're doing in this, in this book. And, they, you know, Cindy has been doing that throughout her entire uh, history. And I love seeing that. I love seeing how it evolves over time. I love seeing um, her relationship with her therapist. And there's also an influencer in this book who is very much me, who would be following yes. her the entire time. Totally, totally agree. And to wrap up those three, I will be chatting about 10 Lives of Wolverine number one. It's been a long time coming. This is a book that a lot of anticipation, a lot of discussion about it. And it makes me so happy that my last regular pick of the week here is brought to us by my boys. Uh, we have writer Benjamin Percy, of course, with artist Joshua Kassara, colorist Frank Martin, another one of the best in the business. Uh, and likewise, two letter in production, which is brought to us by VC's Corey Pettit. Ben has said it. He set out to tell the biggest Wolverine story of all time. And as an enormous Wolverine fan like he is, he knows what he's he knows the enormity of that 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 statement. He knows that that's an incredibly high bar. Um, but I got to say, as a fan of the work that he's put in with Logan in the pages of X-Force, in the pages of Wolverine in recent years, there is nobody around that I would trust more to uh, to reach that bar. The feeling that I was get reading this, it felt special in the same way that those Dawn of X issues felt special. This is a book that, uh, uh, one, I don't want to get too deep into in terms of the actual plot here because I think that is a source of a lot of the magic as you uncover what this story is about based even on that premise it really doesn't tell you too much about the direction that it's going in but um it is a special special read and it is absolutely gorgeous and it's all so well informed by a love for this character a knowledge of this character and a real zeal for wanting to test this character in new and strange ways so much to be excited about here, and I will, though not be uh, regularly co-hosting the show, I will absolutely be regularly reading this series as it comes out issue by issue. It's going to be told concurrently with 10 deaths of Wolverine, and they're going to alternate back and forth as we get these two versions of this uh, tale as they interweave with each other. It's going to be fantastic, and just know that there's so much talent on these two series. So uh, with that... I will now look towards the rest of the new Marvel comics that are coming out this week. Wait, Tucker, before we even dive into those books, the the mighty minds at Marvel are so excited, so behind 10 Lives of Wolverine, number one, that they are putting the book up on Marvel Unlimited to read yes. right now. So this this is this is not a, a, a like a regular thing this is a special case so everyone if, if you're like hey i'm curious about 10 lives of wolverine but i'm not sure i want to spend my hard-earned money just yet you can go read the issue 10 lives of wolverine number one is now on marvel unlimited for a read get yourself started on that and then 
go to your local comic shop and subscribe to the series with them. Get every issue of 10 Lives and X Deaths as they release over the next 10 weeks. Now, looking forward towards all the fresh floppies coming your way this week on January 19th, uh, we will be handing out... Um, in commemoration of the three hosts of this week's episode, the JRT Award. And I thought, okay, JRT, we have Jasmine, Ryan, Tucker, JRT. I was like, maybe there's got to be a good acronym, JRT, right? And guess what? I was right. Jumbo Roll Tissue. That's right. (laughs) The special large-sized... Uh, toilet paper is apparently in some circles, I guess, known as a JRT. One of my favorite facts I've learned in recent times, we'll be handing out the JRT award and we're kicking it off with ASM 86. Ryan, take it away. Here we go. Amazing Spider-Man number 86. Um, I'm just going to say it right here. It gets my jumbo roll tissue award for artist Michael Dowling, who, man, just, we loved Michael Dowling on Black Cat, but this to me is is someone showing off that they're a force to be reckoned with. That if you, if maybe you're a fan of Phil Noto or Sarah Pakelli or um, you know a, a lot of really great artists who can give you beautiful acting and scene setting and some some incredible work, um, Michael is going to be here and is going to deliver it in spades. He's here um, giving a kind of heartbreaking and very upsetting issue of ASM with a lot of revelations and a lot of news. I'm not going to spoil anything. This could have been one of my picks of the week, but we had some big number ones that just rocketed to the top. But Zeb is, uh, Zeb's our guy, man. He's writing this issue. He's writing some Spider-Man. He's doing a heck of a job. Okay. Next up is Avengers number 52. Um, if you've been paying attention to what's been going on over in the, uh, Avengers forever comic, this one also ties in some of those elements and I want to give my JRT award to both Jason Aaron and Juan for Gary because that first page is a complete story on its own. And just that page alone hit me in all the feels and the tone, everything from like mm-hmm. the look on Captain America's face to the, the writing is just like, it reminds me a lot of those like old school like Marvel splash pages when you first opened up a book that looked like a, like a movie poster mm-hmm. where it just immediately sets the tone for the entire book. And it's not all sad, I promise. It's a big issue for uh, Starbrand fans, for sure. All 12 of you, get excited. <laughs> Lots of Starbrand action Are coming. Are you new you fans? Here we go. Brian, if we don't see <laughs> Catherine in a Starbrand cosplay soon, I will be very upset. Ooh. You have to get her that one seat, please. That's a great idea. Look, <laughs> she is probably going to be a huge fan of Lunella Lafayette Ooh. over the next couple of years with all the Moon Girl and Double Dinosaur stuff, so... That's going to take the most priority Fair. once she discovers Moon Girl. But yes, that's a great that's a great pick. And also, uh, I love New Universe. So when I say the twelve fans of Starbrand, I include myself among the twelve. <laughs> so the eleven of us, the eleven others out there, there are tens of us, as they would say in, in Arrested Development. Uh, very very good. Now I'm picking up here with Ben Riley, Spider Man number one. This one is highly anticipated, not just because we finally, for me, finally get to see David Baldion take on a Spidey issue, uh, which is like one of those matches made in heaven, but because we finally get the House of Ideas return of the one and only, the Spider-Man legend, J.M. 
DeMatteis, uh, who writes this issue. And look, I don't know if there's anybody that knows this corner of the universe better uh, on planet Earth. Like I said, when you get that combination, I think you get this combination of one of the most legendary writers of recent decades, um, and then one of the freshest, most unique, most idiosyncratic artists around who has emerged and become absolutely one of our favorites and a fan favorite over the last three or four years, David Baldion. It is such a great magical combination because you have um, you have this like incredible melding between between that art and between that writing, uh, and it's just a really fascinating angle into Ben Riley. Obviously, Ben has been very 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 busy in recent months, and this picks it up, pluses it up, takes it in a new direction in a really really great way. But I can't um, pass this off without giving my JRT award, which I give. I could give it to literally any of the creators mm-hmm. I've mentioned so far, but I want to give it to Alex Malev because he does a variant cover here that when I saw it like a month ago, I've literally just been going back and like looking at it every once a week or something just because it's so gorgeous. It's so perfect. It is just so Alex Malev in all the best ways. It's like vaguely almost Mobius kind of feel to it. It's got that beautiful watercolor vibe. Um, that's one that I think I will be going out and picking up a physical copy of. Ooh, I like that because we're going to be talking about Mobius again Ooh. a little bit later. Yes. Next up is Death of Doctor Strange, X-Men Black Knight, number one. Um, this is great. If you're a Black Knight fan and you've been following along what's been happening recently uh, to Black Knight and his little corner of the universe, uh, you don't want to miss this at all. Um, I was a big fan of Cy Spurrier's, uh mini that came out a couple months ago. And this just picks up right where he left off. Like he continues telling and expanding the lore of Black Knight and bringing it into like the modern day. Um, So if you remember some of the characters that appeared in that one, including his daughter, but the person who I want to give my JRT to is Bob Quinn, because he draws the X-Men in this book in a terrifying way, in like such a scary Mm. and like just gross way that I had a visceral reaction to like the page flip. When I page flipped and I saw them. All right, next up is Defenders number five, a personal favorite of mine. I I could take pretty much every page from this series, from this series, and turn it into a giant poster. Like, mm-hmm. this is, there, there are pages in here that, like, if we had unlimited funds, I would be like, blacklight poster this, blacklight poster <laughs> this, blacklight poster this. So you look at some of the old classic Kirby and Ditko stuff from the early 60s, stuff that they actually made into blacklight posters, you know, and I think in the 70s, they turn them into blacklight posters. This book feels like it pulls some of that. It's amazing the way that Al writes this out and Javier Rodriguez, who gets my JRT award for some of his panel layouts and beautiful vistas and just the weirdest, coolest imagery we have in any Marvel comic in the last couple of years coming out of this series. It is absolutely jaw-droppingly beautiful. I can't stress enough how I want everybody to check this out. Uh, there's some big stuff in here for the Defenders, for the Masked Raider, for the the fate of these characters. But the thing that I really am very happy about is at the very end, it says the Defenders will return summer 2022. Oh, yeah. So pumped for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, next up, we have... Am I saying this right? Devil's Regan. 
Is that where you you're gonna go down that road for this one? I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah, the book that I've been reading properly for the past like two months. Uh, it's Devil's Reign, uh, Villains for Hire, number one. Um, and uh, don't be fooled, folks. This is a Thunderbolts issue. Uh, getting involved in all the action that's going down with Devil's Reign. Uh, just for a, a, another bit of brief context, Wilson Fisk, Mayor Wilson Fisk, is uh, mayor of New York City. He's very legit in that sense, but of course he can never get away from the villainous ties that keep pulling him back into the underworld. And he is outlawed uh, superheroes in New York City. Uh, so he is making it official with the Thunderbolts, putting them on the payroll to make sure they keep things uh, how he wants them around town. We see how the team comes together. We see what exactly they're employed to do and the obviously very nefarious ways that they carry out their duties. Um, it's one of those where it's just like delightful to see baddies do bad things for a bad guy for bad reasons. It's just so much fun to dig into all that. So my JRT award goes to uh, one of the members of this team in particular who I just love to see, and that's Taskmaster. Um, next up is Devil Reigns X-Men number one. Um, and if you guys were really hyped about the uh, Kingpin reveal not too long ago, the Kingpin reveal in this one. You get naked Kingpin in this oh, issue. The people want He it. is butt-ass naked. <laughs> anyway, my JRT award goes not to naked Kingpin, but Polaris, who delivers the most sass in this issue. But she is my favorite X-Men right now. And she just continues to just deliver on every page in every book that she is in. Great. So your JRT <laughs> goes to Nude Kingpin. All right, let's talk about Eternals number nine, <laughs> which is the third part of Hail Thanos. Uh, a great, uh, great title. And look, you want to know what you're getting in this? Thanos just going after the Eternals, killing an unfortunate number of deviants there's evisceration and messed up stuff throughout this issue uh but i will give my jrt probably to the very upsetting text pages that are in here there's two pages side by side of uh names of Le of the lemurians the deviants most of them crossed out and it's the sort of like this is what happens when Thanos comes to town, essentially. And it is a very uh, affecting spread. And it's just mostly names and a couple of um, caption boxes. But I thought it was really well done and very somber. Next up, we have Hulk number three, uh, which is, is continuing to unfold what this saga or what will be a saga of Bruce Banner uh, will present to us. I mean, it's it's really cool because I think we've gotten different tastes of what Donny Cates is bringing us here in terms of the multiverse aspect, in terms of the alternate reality Bruce Banner that we're dealing with here, obviously, as well as the Hulk that we know and love. We've gotten tastes of that sort of cosmic thing from Donny before, certainly maybe in Thanos, maybe in Guardians of the Galaxy. But I think we're seeing it in a new way, in a fresh way here, that uh, it, it just feels like every issue we're like getting the most explosive wild Ryan Otley fueled uh, madness here with so much blood and guts, so much gore, not holding anything back. Really, it's bone cracking stuff. But 
it still feels like there's just so much more we have to learn. Every single page contains something where I'm like, what is that? Who is that? Like, and I just know that whether it's in two issues or 20 issues, we're gonna learn more. This one, for example, like has this enormous, fascinating reveal at the end of the issue, which I loved. It gave me chills. It was so exciting to see. Really inventive, really unique. But again, one of those things that's just like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I just want more. Like I just want more and more and more from this uh, story, from these creators all the time. Two of my favorites around uh, and another smash hit here with Smashtronaut. It's so good. I, I love that name. Smashtronaut. It's just perfect. I, it's so good. <laughs> um, next up, we have Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 34. And I, I was talking to Nick Lowe about this uh, last week where I was talking about shit. Uh, Miles Morales' clone. And when he was first introduced in like Miles Morales' clone conspiracy arc, I didn't expect him to stay for this long. And I was talking to Nick and I'm like, you know, I was always like, oh, when's he going to leave? Like, when's he going to leave? When are they going to figure this thing out? And he just kept on showing up in each book. And in this book, like, I, I realized how much I loved him, and how much he's become a part of this book. And there's like no better page that like exemplifies this than um, this page in the book where Miles Morales kicks in a door and he's like ready to fight, ready to go. And they realize that it's just another room that leads them to another essentially door. And this time Shift just yells blurp and just punches through a wall, like almost imitating Miles Morales, um, but like destroys the wall and makes his own door. Um, and I, that was a page where I laughed out loud and just was like, this is great. This is why he's here. Um, all this to say that I wanna give my JRT award to Shift because he has won me over. He has my heart, it is amazing. And I was talking to Nick about this too. And I was like, if you harm Shift, like, I, I will come after you. Nick has children. <laughs> just remember that. Um, all right. We've got Moon Knight number seven this week. And I, straight up, I'm giving my JRT award to uh, Jed McKay utilizing and showcasing uh, some like tiers of villains that we probably haven't seen since Brian Michael Bendis was running uh, the Hoods crew through the Avengers books. Um, because not only do we get eight ball, but we also get manslaughter Marsdale in here, which most, I would say 99.5% of you listening are like, I don't, I don't know who those characters are, <laughs> which is okay. That's why you read this book. And then you go online and you're like, who are these characters? What do I need to know? And it's fun. And also you get to see Moon Knight beat the hell out of some people. And it is a vengeful Moon Knight going after some people trying to figure out who is hunting him and why pretty rad very very good stuff next up we have phoenix song echo number four this one a little bit knocked me out of my chair uh because i've really enjoyed the first three issues of this series and i'm really enjoying where echo is placed within the marvel universe uh right now thanks in large part um like jazz mentioned if you've been reading along with the avengers but rebecca roanhorse who's the writer here is still betting into the marvel universe still getting to feel at home at the house of ideas this issue really felt like a level up moment where rebecca is hitting her stride i was so impressed um the pacing of it 
the mix between the personal stakes and the broader superhero supervillain action that's going on. I think it was so wonderfully done. And uh, aside from that, this is a gorgeous issue. So shout out to a big creative team, Luca Maresca, Kyle Charles, Carlos Lopez, Brian Valenza. Everybody's bringing their A-game here. This is one of those series that's getting better and better and better with each issue. I was very impressed by this one. So my JRT award goes to Rebecca Roanhorse. Very, very exciting stuff. Yeah. Uh, here comes a personal favorite of mine, Silver Surfer Rebirth number one. It is very intentional in its 90s-ness from the cover, which has the 90s Silver Surfer corner box, the the trade dress. The I, I looked at it and I was like, oh, did they just repurpose a, a classic cover from the 90s run? I think it's a new cover. I'm pretty sure it's a new cover. I can't tell. And that's like the best part about it because it's got this beautiful art by Ron Lim, who is one of my all-time favorites, uh, his run on Silver Surfer, his uh, run on the Inf- Infinity Trilogy of books, all that is very definitive for me to see him back here doing Silver Surfer. And it's not just Silver Surfer. You get Captain's Marvel, you get Thanos, you get all kinds of wild stuff. I don't know where to give my JRT because I want to give it to everything about this book. You know what? I will give it to everything about this book. Here, I can do whatever the hell I want. This is our show. <laughs> I make the rules. And so I'm giving my JRT to everything about this book, including the variant covers, because we mentioned the legend that is Mobius earlier in the show. Well, we have a Mobius-inspired cover here by Alex Malev. Actually, I think there are two Alex Malev covers here. They're both gorgeous and amazing. There's so much to love about this. If you are a fan of classic Ron Mars, Ron Lim, 90s Silver Surfer, this is going to scratch some itches, but also like make you go, wait, what are they doing? How is this happening? It's very exciting. Now we're going from Star Wars to not just more Star Wars, but to weird Star Wars. My favorite <laughs> kind of Star Wars with Star Wars Dr. Afra number 18. And this one, a lot of the weird is brought to us by Co-Phone Ferris, uh, who is a worthy adversary and almost like... It sort sort of digs into that mystical, um, weird. There's something vampiric about this character. Um, such a unique look, such a unique character, and I think presents challenges for Doctor Afra that we haven't seen in a little while. And it's really really fun to combine the classic fly by the seat of your pants vibe of a Doctor Afra story with this new type of villain. I think it really works wonderfully. So uh, so my JRT award goes to none other than KPF, Co-Phone Ferris, for providing some great villainy in this ish. All right, we've got another Star Wars issue this week. Star Wars, The High Republic, number 13. You know, reading these High Republic things, I keep thinking, like, you know the fate. We know the fate of of all this, right? It's like the fall of the Jedi in, in a sense, right? Isn't like, this is the high point for the Jedi, but every, there's like this terrible thing that's hovering over them in the, in the chronology. Um, so for this, I give my JRT to some really awesome, great Jedi moments from, uh, Marshall Avar Chris, who she comes in. There's one moment where she like comes in through a door with some flanked by Jedi's reminds me of, uh, Thor and some of the Avengers coming through and Avengers unlimited, like, you know, Ultron, we will have words with thee. That moment, that George Perez beautiful moment reminded me of that. There's a moment where our Avar blasts, uh, like force blasts the enemy. It's really, there's some really neat stuff in this issue. Next up, we have Strange Academy number 15. I adore this series. And, and the thing I love about it is this cast is just so 
big and they're, they're all different. They're all these little kids dealing with a lot of different issues and it doesn't forget that. And I want to give my JRT award to Umberto Ramos, who's one of my favorite artists, but also there's a sequence in here where Emily and Doyle are both sitting together on like a pier. Mm. But the thing I love about it is that these two kids are just sitting down together. Like they're sitting, there's no movement, but the amount of emotion and movement, like small micro expressions that are like presented in this sequence is just masterful. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the villain in this book, creeping his way into the school um, through Calvin and that's Gaslamp. Uh, I was talking to uh, editor Danny Kazem, who we'll be talking to in this uh, upcoming reading club. And he was previously an editor on this book. And he was talking about how when they first went to New Orleans, they knew right off the bat that they wanted to somehow incorporate the gas lamps that were in, in New Orleans along the streets. And like, this was before issue one was published like that group had decided that they were going to try to come up with a villain named Gaslamp and they were trying to figure out how to work him in. And it, he's just now surfacing in uh, issues 14 and 15. And I'm, I'm curious to see what else they have planned. It's very much agreed, Jazz. And now I am wrapping it up this week with another fave, Venom number four. There's a really unique visual choice that I think happens in this issue in particular that I really enjoyed that Brian Hitch brings us with the art it's sort of a a long lens look at action it's sort of the best way i can describe it where you're super zoomed back in um in the panel and that it, whatever's going on at least starts pretty far away sometimes you get a full view of it in that sometimes you cut to a close-up or something like that but it, at times it adds to this chilling creepy quality it makes you feel like you're peering and looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. And at times, that's actually the case. Uh, there is so many thrills in this issue. Um, it really is ratcheting up the pace, ratcheting up the speed, and the excitement of it all. Um, and it's brought to us by some of the best in the business. So in this one, i got to give my JRT award to Brian Hitch, who is absolutely exceptional at what he does now. We are looking over towards Infinity Comics this week. Some more excellent stuff on the way there over on the Marvel Unlimited app. We have uh, this week X-Men Unlimited uh, number 18. We have Spine Tingling Spider-Man number 7. We have uh, Spider-Bot number 7. And then we also have Life of Wolverine number 1. Uh, Jazz, you want to tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So Life of Wolverine is, for the first time, going to be detailing Wolverine's entire history in chronological order. It's going to be 10 chapters in total, each going to be showing a couple snapshots and moments throughout Wolverine's life. We've had so many different Wolverine origin stories out there um, that I, always, I can't wait to see how they all connect. Heck yeah. All right. Also, if you are a Marvel Unlimited subscriber, there's plenty of new books on the service for you big old honking immortal hulk number 50 right there that's like twelve thousand pages long the dark hold iron man which we really really love and plenty more check them all out over on marvel unlimited tucker one last time tell us those collections collections section coming to you this week we have amazing spider-man beyond volume one. Oh man i will be picking that up I uh, haven't said it enough that I've loved everything going on in Amazing Spider-Man Beyond. Um, then we also have 
Miles Morales at Volume 6, All Eyes on Me. Jazz, you mentioned loving everything going on in Miles. I am right there with you. We also have Spider-Woman, speaking of the Spidey side of things, Spider-Woman Volume 3, Back to Basics. And then we also have Reign of X, Volume 8. Can't believe we are eight volumes into Reign of X now. Also, can I just say how much I appreciate that all the Miles Morales collections are titled after hip-hop albums like all eyes on me classic tupac album <laughs> love it keep it going guys wasn't all eyes on me with a z though aha he's got you there it's more of a <laughs> homage you burned doesn't matter <laughs> you let's know what? move on yes no you, you are, got you your are ass. perfectly right uh it was great um yeah so uh all that said great stuff everywhere you turn uh and if you're still want more how about reading some spider-man comics with us as we talk to spidey editor danny kazem who is going to come on the show to talk about spider-man revelations a storyline that uh wrapped up the clone saga i mean they took a lot of stories and then in four issues they did it together and we're going to talk about that and more with our pal danny right now All right, folks, here we go. Get thwippin', uh, because joining us today is the one and only DK. No, not Donkey Kong. We have with us Daniel Kazem. <clears throat> Sorry, I mean Danny Kazem. Danny, Marvel editor extraordinaire. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Danny, your blonde hair is still blowing me away. I've seen pictures of it online. This is the first time we've been on, on a video chat together. It looks fantastic uh, for our listeners explain why you now have beautiful blonde hair okay uh so back in the 90s uh there was a character called ben riley uh and when he took over as spider-man he decided well i don't want to look exactly like peter parker so he uh bleached his hair um and that was something i kind of always wanted to do since i was a kid um i think back in uh, sixth grade i bleached the front and it looked uh horrendous um you know because everybody was you know frosted tips it was it was it was a thing of the time you know um but uh i started working on this new ben riley spider-man series uh with jam Dematis, um david baldion and uh you know i kind of thought this was a this was the time to do it so you know the book is coming out soon and i thought you know i may as well look the part unbelievable you look great I want to say first and foremost, congratulations. That's got to be a seriously mind-blowing experience. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a, a dream come true. It doesn't, it still doesn't feel real. If I went back and told myself that was reading these books at the time, yeah, you're going to be editing a, a Ben Riley book in that time period with Jam D. Mateus. Like that's that's insane. He's one of the definitive writers in comics, period. Um, but especially when it came to Spider-Man and specifically Ben Riley, like he he is a a key creator in that character um, and really helped flesh out the humanity of Ben Riley. And is a reason why I love him. Yeah. Uh, and that's it's all kind of coming to the reason why we're having our reading club today, partially because we want everybody to get excited for the new Ben Riley Spider-Man book, but also because we are going to talk about the end of the clone saga. Um, we are going to be talking about Spider-Man revelations, the four parts that wrapped up 
gosh, years of Clone Saga shenanigans, um, as well as uh, an extra bonus issue that I throw in. Danny, you chose these four issues. Um, this encompasses, um, it goes across, well, at the time we had four Spider-Man titles, so Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man, to Sensational, to Amazing, and then finishing up with a big, massive, uh, adjectiveless Spider-Man issue. I'll be honest, I've never read these issues. I remember flipping through Spider-Man 75 in a mall convenience store when it came out. I, like, I very clearly remember the Green Goblin, the JRJR art, but I wasn't, I wasn't reading comics that heavily at the time, and I wasn't reading Spider-Man comics at all. And so I only have tangential um, connection to this stuff. So I was I was excited to read through this for the first time. How many times have you read this uh, this story? I mean, not just the story, but specifically the uh, adjective list. And at, when this issue came out, it was retitled Peter Parker, Spider-Man as a definitive, you know, finale to this whole Ben Riley saga. It was hmm. Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Um, so 75 for me has always been a a sentimental book because I, I felt like it, it encompasses a lot of Spider-Man and the sacrifice that Spider-Man makes, you know, to protect the people in his life. I mean, this this issue specifically brings back Norman Osborn, who had been gone since uh, Amazing Spider-Man 122 when he died. So, you know, it was one of the the, the biggest villains in in spider-man lore coming back and you know wreaking havoc on peter's life and this issue also shows a lot of the sporting cast too and the reason why people love spider-man there is the supporting cast and the soap opera of it all that you know is is hand in hand with the superhero yeah um uh, and i will say uh before i let you tag back in tucker that the other issue we're going to talk about <laughs> is a real weird one it is spider-man 101 ways to end the clone saga uh which is a real thing you can read it on marvel unlimited we're going to talk about that and to do that we had to bring in a special guest we have uh executive editor vp Tom Brevoort, who appears in the comic book to talk about that and uh, probably give a little insight. But we're going to do that in a little while. Uh, we got to get into these Spidey issues first. To, to give us some background context as far as the, the Danny Kazem relates to it and, and what had you bring us these issues um, today, Danny, where did it all begin for you? I know mean, that's a big question, but um, do you remember the, the first time you cracked open a, a, a comic book? I mean, yeah, for me, it was... Uh... The, the spinner rack at the the Grand Union, which was a, a supermarket chain. I don't, I don't believe it still exists, um, but that was where I got my fix. Um, you know, and that was, that continued to like these issues themselves, like specifically, you know, Spectacular 240 and Peter Parker, Spider-Man 75, like those I got off the spinner rack at that Grand Union. Um, you know, it actually wasn't until a little bit later that I was able to get those, the the middle two issues. So, you know, an interesting thing about collecting when you're a kid, you know, it wasn't as easy as it is and things aren't as accessible as they are today. Like for me, it was, oh, I picked up, you know, this part one at, you know, the supermarket and well, I didn't go back with my mom to the supermarket for, you know, another couple of weeks. Oh, well, here's Peter Parker. Here's part four, you know it would take going to an actual comic shop and 
going through the long boxes. And I also think that's kind of where that love of like bin diving came from, of just like going through the long boxes, looking for stuff, you know, finding gold. What what I found interesting, you were talking about it, specifically talking about the Norman Osborn of it all. And the fact that he was gone for longer than he'd been around at that point. So he's gone for 300 issues, roughly, you know, which is, you know, 20 some odd years, 25 years, something like that. Um, 122 comes back in, in around 418 of Amazing Spider-Man. And so there's this huge gap. You forget about that because Norman Osborn and the Green Goblin has been so prevalent in Marvel comic stories over the last especially the last 15 years with dark rain and, and so much more that has gone on. Um, it's, it's fascinating to think about that, but I also start to then go down the road of thinking about other key milestones, how that fits into the timeline here, like Harry Osborn dying in 200. And to me in uh, spectacular Spider-Man 200, that feels to me it's less than four years, but it feels like, 15 years separating from from this story the clone saga story and this or even um aunt may having died in 400 i think it was so that's a year and a half before these events or it's wild how all this stuff sort of like you try to put it in, in a in a time frame and it feels both like it's all on top of each other but all so far apart yeah and I think also with there being usually four spider books at that point from from those periods that like that also elongated that that feeling of like the it's it's taking forever from when Harry died to when Aunt Bay died to when Norman returned, but it was really only a couple of years. This this all kicks off, right, in in Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man number two forty. Um and uh, it's it's a really you know fascinating angle into this story. I'm curious, Danny, like when you look back at whether you you're kind of quantifying it or putting it in the context of being a crossover story across these different books, or whether you're just kind of shuffling that to the side and saying, okay, this is a Ben Riley, Peter Parker, Norman Osborn, MJ story. Um, it doesn't really matter which which titles it was coming out in. Do you find this as like a a touchstone story for you in terms of how you understand Marvel comics or Spider-Man or, or, or just storytelling period. Absolutely. I mean, specifically 240 as well, this like spectacular Spider-Man 240 gives you a look into, again, speaking to humanity, like this was the closest outside of, of Harry Osborn, like even a little closer like because he is his clone these two are brothers like they've lived reasonably similar lives you know the the five years on the road made ben a very different person but at their core they're they're still so relatable to each other and this issue shows how much they care for each other like they are brothers and you know you don't often get that with peter parker you don't get to see those friends and that connection that deeply. And it's something that, you know, is a little heartbreaking for, for Peter. Like he doesn't get to connect with people that, that strongly, you know, for fear of, you know, the green goblin coming in and taking them to a bridge and tossing them off. <laughs> 
I think the Clone Saga gets a lot of flack, obviously, for going on a long time, for sort of seemingly going in, in different directions from what I understand. Um, but I think, you know, as a wrap up, it feels pretty solid how they came to this, you know, this ending. Um, you'd read the whole, had you read the whole clone saga? Uh, myself? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've read it all and it's, you know, it is a roller coaster, but at its, at its core, like there is a lot of, uh, emotion and heart and, and again, going back to that term, like humanity in this, like that is why we love Peter Parker, you know, for the, the relatable human layer to it. Danny, you, I mean, talk about sagas, talk about soap operas, huge, huge comic book storytelling. You put an enormous amount of work into what for a lot of people is um, their favorite Venom run of all time. Can you quantify takeaways that you have from what clearly is, you know, a very special story to you here that we're reading today? That then when you came to the House of Ideas and, and were working on something like Venom, you were able to apply. I think one of the things that a lot of these conversations go back to, even though we're in superhero comics, you know, good guys punching bad guys and superpowers and whipping and snifting and, and all of this. The thing that brings people back and keeps people reading and, and again, even this, this conversation, it keeps, I keep going back to that, that term humanity and that relatability and that connection that you impart on those stories as a reader, like you're putting yourself in those shoes and imagining your relationships and comparing those to the people in your life and, and how you feel and you react and, you know, you want, you want the best for these characters you know, and seeing those, those human interactions and that, that soap opera of it all, like that is what I think is really key in a lot of this because it is so relatable because yeah, we're not superheroes. We don't, you know, put on a costume and, and go, you know, fight supervillains, but we have relationships, we have friendships, you know, we have people in our lives that we care about. And, you know, that is the, the real relatable nature especially of marvel characters especially of peter parker and ben riley and and eddie brock like going back to that venom run like eddie and dylan and that relationship and how that all played out through that series like that is a big part of why that volume worked was the humanity of eddie brock like going back to you know asm 300 like maybe you don't see much humanity in, in Eddie Brock and he just seems like a big villainous dude. But when you dig in and you understand him as a person, you start to connect with him so much more. Hmm. Um, I want to make sure we give some credits here for these issues. Uh, Spectacular Spider-Man 240, written uh, by Todd DeZago, who also writes Sensational Spider-Man number 11. So that's parts one and two. Uh, a young Luke Ross penciling Spectacular Spider-Man, who Luke just, I love Luke. I hung out with him a bunch when I was in Brazil a couple years ago, and he's still crushing it. Uh, done a lot of work on Star Wars titles and much more of late. And then you have the legend Mike Waringo, 
on Sensational 11. And I didn't look at the credits before I was going through these. And so I got to the Ringo art on Sensational. I was like, oh my God, it's so good. And then you go into the next issue, which is written by Tom DeFalco, Amazing Spider-Man 418. Pencils by Steve Scross, who um, had a great run. I was a big fan of his uh, like mutant stuff. And then the big wrap-up is in Spider-Man number 75, written by Howard Mackey. Pencils by John Romita Jr., Every time we read a Johnny Jr. book, it's a reminder of how good he is, how good he's always been, how incredible his work is. And this this issue in particular, we'll get more into it, I guess, as we get through some of the other beats, but it feels like someone is just hammering you with like, you can feel the punches, the kicks, those moments, the like big splash pages. There's a, you know, where Spidey's like kicking and you almost feel it as you're reading it. He has such a great way of imparting that, the impact and the power behind, um, behind his action and, and the emotion throughout all that. So it is, it is something special, but uh, yeah, sensational 11, um, the Waringo, that was just so good. Danny, you had a big smile when I mentioned Mike Waringo. Yeah, his art just, it, it warms my heart. You know, it's it's sad we lost him so young. Um, he his, his career would have been so long and, and beautiful. You know, his, his work on Spider-Man was some of my favorite. And then he went on to, to do an incredible run uh, with Mark Wade on Fantastic Four that like really uh, established him as, as such a, a staple in this industry. Like Steve Scross uh, continued on amazing after this and his art was something I really connected with as well, which is why I brought Steve in to do the covers for our Ben Riley series um, because he just has this, this energy and kinetic spidey style that I still wanted to, to, to keep with, with the Ben Riley book, which I think David Baldion really excelled at in a, in a way that you know was respectful to the the style of of Ringo as well at that time yeah I mean, it's it's so funny you you making that connection with Steve Scross because you know I'm here asking all these nebulous questions of like lessons you took from this kind of thing and like this story and applying it to now and these various characters in different ways but there's so there's like deep connective tissue between you know this era these books that we're reading and then the story that that you're currently literally right now in the middle of telling, which is so cool. And it's so exciting. And I do feel a kinship between that and like this Ringo art that we're talking now. So that's one of the things that uh, I love about working on this Ben Riley Spider-Man series is not only the connections to the Ben Riley past, but also the things that came after Ben Riley, like speaking to uh, JMD Mateus, the, the next issue of Spectacular Spider-Man 241, uh, Di comes back to Spectacular and has uh, a bit of a run on that book, which again, at the time I was reading every issue, picking it up at, at Grand Union. And the, the stuff we're doing here with Ben's relationship with uh, Dr. Ashley Kafka keys into some of the stuff that he does later with the chameleon and Kafka. And not only that, like the, the stuff we're establishing here with their relationship is something that we're already seeing play out in the ASM Beyond story arc that's happening right now. 
pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, I want to get into the last uh, last couple of issues. We get the the sort of the going into labor, um, really intense stuff that starts off in um, that I believe is in Sensational. No, that, that's in um, Amazing Spider-Man and uh, where the labor is really going on and that like you get um, Peter and Ben fighting side by side. And, and at this time, Peter's powers have been, you know, sort of on the fritz going in and out. Um, and so there's, there's some really good drama there as they're working together. And as someone who had not read the story and didn't know all the beats, I kind of felt dread throughout that issue of like, Oh God, no. Oh no. And it's like, that's a great feeling of, of drama. You're feeling what these characters are going through and, and seeing that Peter is that old Parker luck is just coming through and he's, he's got a fight and getting that i think it's at the end of amazing spider-man where we have the revelation of who's been behind the whole thing um as someone who was reading all this at the time danny what did that green goblin norman osborne revelation hit you were you very aware of the goblin what was it for you i mean for me not only reading the the comics i was also you know watching the the cartoon at the time um and you know, I understood how important Norman was to Spider-Man. So I also had, uh, wow, this just unlocked a, an interesting memory. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, there were these CD comics that uh, had one or two comics in it. And the one that I had was the introduction of the Hobgoblin in ASM 238. When you clicked on one of the notes, it sent you to ASM 39 and 40 when Norman and Peter are unmasked to each other and you first see that connection between them. So to have that as a kid and then to walk into this and have Norman coming back and saying, hey, all this madness that has happened over the last you know three years of publishing for you, Spider-Man, uh, it's my fault. I did all of this to you. Like this is, this is, and again, speaking to the, the, the human connection of it all, like, and, you know, Peter and, and Norman are saying it in there. Like, it's not about Spider-Man and Green Goblin. It's about Peter and Norman and that, you know, connection and conflict that they have. One of the things that stood out to me when I was, when I was reading these issues, and it's really just a Ben Riley thing in general, is that damn costume is so good it still looks so good today literally if you told me and if i didn't know and and we opened up asm beyond you know two months ago and somebody told me like oh that's the brand new costume the blue like the way it kind of reaches up over the shoulders this is this is coming out pat gleason designed it i'd be like wow that's so sick it looks so fresh and so modern it's just amazing that i don't care when it was whether it was the 80s the 90s or two years ago somebody that can come up with a costume design that truly is as timeless as something like the Spider-Man costume is unbelievable. And here's an editor's question for you, Danny, when you're having those conversations and when you're designing a new costume, you're putting something together like that. Is that just an intuitive process? Is that just something that's just like, um, when you're giving notes, when you're having a conversation with an artist, with a writer, whoever it might be, and they submit a design, is that, are there rules or is it just like, um, yeah, I like it. Let's see what 
Nick Lowe thinks as well. And, you know, we'll just go from there. It's a, that's a really good question. I, I think a lot of it is for, for lack of a, of a better way to say it, like it is intuition. Like it's, it's what I grew up reading. What, like you said, like what Nick Lowe grew up reading, like the things that we liked and enjoyed and like aesthetically knowing that like certain things like hit a certain way that's that's kind of where it comes from I think it's more of a subconscious thing of how easily redrawable is this Mm -hmm. like if I give this to five different artists like are they going to be able to hit this consistently you know is there too much going on in this you know, uh, especially in the nineties with, with pouches and all kinds of craziness, like might be hard to replicate stuff. Um, but with this, it's such a simple design that's still unique while also still so similar to the original Spider-Man costume. And one thing that I think, especially like working on Venom that really hit for me is the visuals. Like you want to see that Venom logo. You want to see his eyes. You want to see that mouth. So with Ben Riley, you want that big spider. You want to see that. Like that is something that is is very eye catching, and connects with people. As someone who wasn't really reading these books, it's it is a great design. But I also think of the the hoodie design. And I, when did that change? Do you remember? I don't even know. So so what happened in Spectacular Spider Man two twenty nine? That is when Peter gives up the mantle. And after that, all of the books changed over to the amazing Scarlet Spider or spectacular Scarlet Spider. And for about two months, they did that. And then they came back with the original numbering and Ben finally took on a new costume with Sensational Spider-Man number zero, which was written and drawn by Dan Jurgens. Um, and Dan back in in that period he and mark bagley both did designs for a ben riley costume and the bagley one is what we know and love the jurgens design is something that he had kind of forgotten about and when he was talking to uh you know our our head talent management guy ricky purden uh he was like oh i think i have that original design that i had done and so he went and found the original, you know, artboard, scanned it in, and we actually have it uh, on issue one. And it's likely we're going to see it in this Ben Riley series. Um, so we are going to see a, a new costume uh, come in as well. And it might not be worn by Ben. Ooh, it's a cool look. I'm looking at the, the variant cover right now that features that design, and I can see like it the the why it's really cool but also how much of a pain in the butt it would be because there's a lot of webbing in very concentrated places um as opposed to like a little bit wider spread out throughout the uh, thing thinking about how easy it could be to draw on a regular basis um but still it looks freaking cool and you know think about dan jurgens man helped kill superman uh <laughs> helped do all this stuff with spider-man Dude's been around a long ass time. Good on him. I'm glad he's doing stuff again with us here at Mighty Marvel. Um, let's go into the what initially brought us all on, which is Spider-Man number 75, concluding the whole 
Clone Saga. Yeah, I I just I thought it was it was really cool to see Norman Osborn, Green Goblin, come in and be a nightmare and be that that really establishing villain. Like that is that is a really brutal way for for the team to wrap it up and say like, hey, this is this is how we're going to finish the clone saga. Bring back a character who's not been around for 20 years, who has great history and make him even scarier and more horrible than you could have imagined. Yeah. Speaking to the mood of this book, like John Jr. Does some incredible work throughout this. And as a kid, you know, seeing Bagley and, and Steve Butler and, and those guys during the Clone Saga, you know, it, John was working on the book as well. But as a kid, like his art was so distinctly different than those styles and a lot of the styles of the 90s. Because like you were saying before, the, the weight that he brings to the characters and the scenes, like they are characters living in a space. And sometimes that's that's tough for an artist to to wrap their heads around, like getting getting characters to feel weight and feel like they are living in a space. And John does it effortlessly in this book. And again, the hits, the pushes, the kicks, the seeing seeing Norman reveal the scar from the the goblin glider, like there is just a lot to love in this book uh we will get back to the the core issues uh that danny has brought us but we are joined by the one and only tom brevoort right now tom we were talking about the spider-man revelations the end of the clone saga and um uh because we are also excited about the new ben riley spider-man book um but i i brought to to the rest of the crew's attention the spider-man 101 ways to end the clone saga from 1997 and uh, you appear in said comic book. I appear on said comic book. <laughs> you are all over said comic book. Um, it's my first Marvel cover appearance. So when you when you go to slab your copy, make sure that they take note of that because it's <laughs> it's way more valuable that way. Uh, we'll set up a special signing event for Tom Brevoort to send to sign all the CGC graded <laughs> copies uh, and get them slabbed. But Tom, how did this uh, this issue come together? Uh, well, I didn't work on this issue per se, but the way the idea of it came together was um, I don't know how much you've talked about this. Uh, sitting here i'm sure somewhat but the clone saga was an absolute mess uh (laughs) editorially um and and in part because it was supposed to be a relatively short story that got extended again and again and again uh because it was it was successful people really boosted sales on the spidey books readers were into it uh and and people chased those sales far beyond the point where perhaps they they should have. Uh, And so as they did that, uh, they had to keep stringing along the mystery of who is the real clone. And they kept putting all these other clones out. There was famously the the skeleton that they find in the the smokestack where years before Peter Parker had dumped the body of his original clone. Um, And and so there were all sorts of things, um, all sorts of clues essentially being dropped 
uh, sometimes without people really knowing where they were going, uh, and sometimes where they were going changing on the fly as they had to stretch things out or shift things around or suddenly the switch to Ben Riley from Pete wasn't going to happen that way or wasn't going to be permanent that way. It was a messy period. Anyway, there was a whole string of time there where we had to figure out how do we, how do we end this thing? How do we land this plane? Um, and pretty much everybody wrote some kind of document or I don't know if it was emails in those days, but, but uh, uh, you know, some kind of idea or summary as to how to try to do this. Uh, and some of them you know, made a little sense. Some of them made no sense at all. Uh, most of them didn't account for every single uh, item that that uh, had been brought up. You know, they just kind of went, ah, we're not going to worry about the clues. We're just going to, we'll solve it this way. Nobody will care. Uh, well, we care. We put a lot of work into those clues. Uh, you know, so, so there was a lot of division on this. Um, and that happened even before, I mean, the, I think the clone cycle ran for like another year after that period. But at some point, there was a need, as there occasionally is, for uh, uh, for a, a budget filler book, something to get us to the financial mark we had to get to. And so somebody suggested, why don't we, as as a part of this, why don't we take all those endings that that we're not going to use, and we'll illustrate them, and we can make a fun sort of a, a no prizey sort of book out of it, where. It's, it's uh, you know, a behind the scenes look at all this nonsense. So most of the ideas that were in that 101 clones uh, book were based on actual pitches that people made. Um, I don't know that they're always expressed there as well as the people who, who pitched them would have done because I forget who wrote that book at the, at the moment. Mark Bernardo. Mark Bernardo, who, who, was, uh, who was working editorially in the Spider-Man office, so he was intimately familiar with all that stuff. Knowing it was, it was him, you know, more or less what was expressed there was probably on the mark, just in a lot of cases stripped down to, here's four panels to summarize, you know, the gist of what whomever, you know, might have pitched as the, as the end of this thing. So it was really done as, as somewhat of a goof, somewhat of a, there's a whole mountain of stuff we have here that's not going to be used for anything and a need to make a fiscal mark. Tom, I, I was very lucky, uh, I think a couple of years back at this point, to talk to you about um, the context surrounding uh, or leading up to Marvel Knights, kind of the, the 1990s and mid-90s at large in terms of what things were like at Marvel. Would you characterize, like you said, the 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 story of the behind the scenes story of the making of uh, the clone saga as sort of like a good example of, of, of the, the difficulties that were, that were kind of a broader, broader issue at the time, or was this more of a, a specific kind of issue? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's sort of the poster child for all the problems that existed because during the run of that clone saga, the top editorial spot at Marvel changed at least twice. Um, the ownership of the company changed at least twice. The president of the company changed at least twice and probably more like three or four times. You know, and the, the directives and the needs of, of whatever people were looking to achieve shifted depending on 
who was who was pulling the levers of power and, and what things happened to to be important that day or that week. Um, you know, the whole clone saga itself started as a reaction to some of that. It started because uh, DC had killed Superman and gotten a, a lot of sales and they were they were breaking Batman's back and they came to the Spider-Man editorial office and went, what are you going to do that's going to get us in newspapers like Superman and Batman? Uh, and, you know, the answer that they that, that that creative team and the editors came up with was uh, Spider-Baby. Uh, and Spider Baby, you know, getting having Mary Jane get pregnant and have have the, the the Spider Baby, you know, that would be newsworthy enough to to be covered in newspapers. I don't know how true that actually is in in 1993, but that's what people thought or hoped. And so the 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 question then became, how do you get to Spider Baby? How can how can you have Peter and Mary Jane have a, a baby and, and still go out and be Spider Man? And isn't that the height of your responsibility? And as as this was all being discussed, uh, you know, Terry Cavanaugh came up with the idea of, well, why? What if what if uh, we brought back the Spider-Man clone, and it turned out that he was the real guy all the time? Then you could have Pete married Pete and Mary Jane, and and their baby like go off into the sunset, never to be seen again. And you could put the the guy who we now know is Ben Riley back as Peter Parker, and he could just be a single Peter Parker again, and it's all taken care of. <laughs> and it sounded so easy to them at the time, and it turned out to just be a big thorny mess. Um, that having been said, this all goes back to one of my fundamental uh, tenets when I talk to people about the Marvel Universe, which is, if you wait long enough, even the failures are successes. Uh, and I point to things like, you know, the Hulk was canceled in six issues, and X-Men was canceled at the end of the 60s. And, and Ant-Man was a, was a complete flop. And these are all things that now are, are enormous. And you, know, you can look at even more recent stuff like say Squirrel Girl, who was a, a one-off character that everybody uh, thought was a joke and a, and a, and a flop and, and awful and is now, you know, has toys and is in animation and uh, you know, every, everywhere else. Like any of this stuff, if you put the right creative team on it and the zeitgeist is right, uh, you know, there, there's value to be had. And Ben Riley is is no different in some ways. Ben Riley is is lower hanging fruit. Uh, like you say, a bunch of people grew up with him and love him already. So it shouldn't be that difficult to, to you know, take that character and, and do more stuff with him and, you know, continue to chart a path and have him have him grow. Hence why Danny has picked that fruit and is giving it to us on a wonderful platter. <laughs> I am one of those kids that grew up with Ben Riley and was reading those books as they were coming out. And it, you know, it, it hit me at the right time. So that there's the, the baby that is at the end, the May, the, the baby of Peter Parker and MJ is like, there's this big hanging. I read it and I was like, well, what happened to the baby? Where did the baby go? Because there's mystery around it. To your knowledge, has that ever been brought back up again? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like Spider Girl is all about that that series, uh, and there were some follow up stories in the the Spider Man books after this. Because one of the things about the Clone Saga is that even after it was done, nobody could leave it the heck alone the way they should have. 
uh, and, and just gone, we're done, move, move on. Uh, you know, you, you could pick up any spider, any random issue of any Spider-Man title for the next three years and somebody cracks a clone joke in it. And, but that, uh, that idea of the, of the potential ended up being a, a, a pretty good one because the biggest problem everybody had with trying to bring Peter back and as, as, a, as Spider-Man was you don't want to kill off that, that, that baby. You don't want to do that to those characters. Uh, and, and it's hard for him to go back to being a, uh, you know, flippy, quippy, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man after, after having that happen. Um, by that same token, there's nothing in those stories that indicate that that bundle that, that Allison Mongrain gives to Norman Osborn or whatever is the baby. It could be anything, but it's an old, it's an old soap opera trick. You know, there's a mysterious thing that gets given and, you know, it's done in such a way that you, the reader, connect the dots and it allows you to have hope. Maybe the child is still out there somewhere. Maybe Pete and Mary Jane uh, uh, you know, can find him or her or it someday and, and, and can go back to being, even though the intention was we're never touching it again, it's never coming back, it's, it's all gone. It was literally there to provide that seed of closure for people who were really invested in that side of the story. But yeah, there were some other stories where they brought Allison Montgrain back and went looking for the bundle and so forth. Again, probably within a year of the end of the clone saga, I would, I would say. I think they were in the DeFalco written issues of Amazing Spider-Man, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, and then I think well, some of that tied back to bringing Aunt May back, as opposed to May the Base. Right, yeah, 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 I think you're right. I think you're right. Tom, thank you so much. You're always a pleasure. We appreciate you taking time out of your day to come talk comics and, and give us some really great yeah. perspective on, on these books and your time at Marvel. Sure, Thanks, Tom. happy to do it. Denny, before we let you go, um, I do want to know about this, uh, the new book, the Ben Riley Spider-Man book. Um, where does it take place in sort of the, the chronology of, of Ben Riley and his, his time in the, the, his original time in the Marvel Universe? So it takes place almost immediately after the redemption uh, storyline that J.M.D. Mateus uh, did which kind of closed the book slightly with Ben and Kane and their relationship, as well as uh, Ben's relationship uh, with uh, Janine Godby, who, you know, at the end of that went away to prison. And if people have been reading the the current ASM Beyond, uh, she is now finally out of prison. But it takes place after that, but before obviously Revelations. Um, so there are certain characters that. Uh, maybe in Ravencroft because of issues prior to this, but then are out later that maybe they got out during this uh, this arc. Um, but it's it's somewhere right in between that that sweet spot. Danny, uh, thank you so much for for joining us here to talk about this stuff, sharing your expertise, um, your spidey knowledge. Uh, and some, you know, for, for those loyal listeners, uh, one or two little teases of stuff maybe to come in, in Ben Riley. Again, thank you guys for, for taking the time to, to chat with me. I'm glad uh, we had the time to, to talk and, and uh, you know, enlighten people on uh, the end of the Clone Saga. And if anybody wants to go read the 
70, 80, 90 issues of whatever it is across those three or four years. It's all on Marvel Unlimited. It's all collected in, in big honking trade paperbacks and omnibuses, omnibuy. Go go do it. I want to hear from y'all. <laughs> I want to know uh, if anybody out there actually goes in a current, like a new read of the Clone Saga and how they, how they feel about it because it's pretty cool. A lot of fun stuff. Thank you again to DK Danny Kazem for joining us on the show. That's one that I've been looking forward to for a very, very, very long time. Um, Danny is a special talent, a great person to talk to, really knows his stuff, super in love with Spider-Man, so it was great to break it all down. Really weird to see him with blonde hair. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tucker, we say goodbye to you now because this episode of Marvel's Pullist was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, and Jasmine Estrada. Jill DeBoth is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Pullist's audio development manager and also legally my father. Dun, dun, dun. I'm Ryan. I'm Tucker. I'm Jasmine. And this is Marvel. You're you.